Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtations Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 21 How It Was Done. Never in her life had Pam worked so hard as she did in that week before Sophie was married. The house must be scrubbed from top to bottom. It seemed clean enough for everyday occupation, and she would not have trouble about it until some wet spell had given her the leisure from outside tasks necessary for cleaning out one or two of the rooms which seemed to need it most. But the wedding altered everything. Pam cared not at all because the place needed almost everything in the way of household plenishing. That was not her fault nor her responsibility, but her pride would have been hurt in its most vital parts if those neighborhood women had come in to find dirty floors and windows bugged up with cobwebs. She was astir at the draw on Monday morning and started her campaign against dirt in the most energetic fashion possible. When she began to stir the rooms out, she was dismayed to find how really dirty they were, and she worked so hard that Jack declared there would be nothing of her left by Thursday. Sophie wanted to help with the cleaning, but was sternly reminded that brides were looked upon as being rather ornamental than useful, and she was not allowed to soil her hands for that one week at least. Don came over on Tuesday and scrubbed the big kitchen for Pam, He had been away over the weekend with George Lester and knew nothing of the trouble at home until he got back late on Monday evening. 
to find himself biltered at the stores in company with George and ordered to keep away from home. The two children had sickened were not really ill, but of course the next case might be very bad indeed, so the doctor was taking no risk. Mrs. Grinson shut herself up with the small invalids, and the rest of the children were taken to a lone house where there were no other children, and their father saw them and their father saw them twice a day to make certain they were not developing the complaint. Dr. Grinson had done so many kind things for people in his time that all the neighbors vied with each other in their efforts to soothe for him the present embarrassment. Pam had to refuse so many offers of help and to insist so strongly that supplies should be kept down to the limit she had asked for that she was amazed not only at the kindness of everyone, but also at the resources at their disposal. She would not allow them to bring everything to the house until Wednesday, by which time she would have the place in fit trim to receive all the things that were to be loaned and all the food that was to be given. She had refused to let Jack scrub, for she had her own ideas on how the work should be done, and she meant to have the house brought up to standards somehow. But when Don appeared and took bucket and brush away, from her by sheer force, there was nothing for it but to give away, because he was the stronger, and she knew she could not get the things away from him if she tried. Then, too, he did the work in a masterfully fashion. It was pure pleasure to see the energy he put into brushwork, and the capable manner in which he swapped up the water, the corners, too, got such a routing out, that after watching him for five minutes, Pam stretched her weary arms above her head and went away to put her hair straight, feeling that so far as the scrubbing was concerned, her responsibility was at an end. By Wednesday night, the house was so transformed that Pam declared her grandfather would not know the place if he came back. Do you think he will come back? asked Jack, as the two had a final look around before going to bed. Nathan said that if anything would bring him back, it would be the wedding. He would be so scandalized at the thought of having so many women and girls about the place, he would certainly turn up if he were still alive. That is one of the reasons why I have been so keen to have a great fuss. Of course, he may be very angry, but even that will be worthwhile if it only ends this suspense and lets us know where we are. Pam sighed. She was so very tired of the uncertainty of her present life, and she so badly wanted her mother and others to come before the summer was really over. Their help would be useful too, for each day brought on so many things to be done, and two pairs of hands seemed quite inadequate for the task. Sophie's trunk was packed and labeled for the far west. There was nothing left to be done except the custard and the coffee, and there would be plenty of help in the morning for them. Dr. Grinson had been over for our last talk with his daughter, and Sophie had gone off to bed bound in tears, for it did seem cruelly hard that she should not have the support of her mother's presence at this, the most important time in her life, but her father had promised her that her mother should come pay her a visit before very long, and that was a real conversation. Still, there were tears to be shed, and Sophie was just having a really good cry before Pam came upstairs. Jack was going to sleep on the settle in the kitchen tonight because his bedroom had been requisitioned as an extra sitting room, and it was all arranged and in the most splendid order. A big table formed from boards from the barn stretched the length of the kitchen and was truly spread for the feast with borrowed knives, forks, spoons, and crockery. Oh, it was a fine sight, for no one had been neglected, 
and everyone had done their bit to give the doctor's daughter a good send-off. Way a lot of fuss for one wedding, remarked Jack. If I were you and Don, I would get married at the same time, now that we have got all the things here. It seems a real pity to waste all this fine spread on one couple, and you cannot get such a smart carpet every day. I'm not going to get married yet a while, so don't worry about that. And if you think the show is wasted upon two people, you had better find a wife for yourself, or else hope Nathan Grittis to find one, laughed Pam. But her color mounted, for privately she had been thinking of what a lovely place Ripple was for a wedding. I should not wonder if it puts the idea in his head, Jack answered soberly, and then he pranced up and down the room looking at all the things that had been loaned and wondering what would happen if a burglar came along. Oh, don't even mention such a thing, cried Pam. I should not know where to put my head if anything happened to any of the things. You must sleep with one eye open, and if you hear a sound, you must take a clamor at once. Would you rather that I stayed here with you? I could get quite a lot of sleep sitting in a chair. Indeed, I am so tired that I think I could have a comfortable nap standing on my feet, as Mrs. Buckle's old horse does. No, no, my child, you toddle off upstairs and get your beauty sleep, and then you will be properly good-looking for tomorrow, said Jack, taking her by the shoulders and gently pushing her toward the door. It does not do for a girl to play fast and loose with her complexion. She can only take care of what she has got, and she can't hope to get another when that is gone, unless she can afford to buy one, and even that is not like the real thing. Don't you worry about me. If a burglar comes nosing around after this cooperative furnishing, he will get more than he bargains for from the old dog and me. We are in fine feather tonight, I can tell you, so there is no need for you to worry. Sophie had cried herself to sleep by the time that Pam got upstairs. Pam herself was so sleepy that it almost too much trouble to slip out of her garments. But when she lay down and her tired body could rest, she suddenly became tremendously wide awake it was the thought of her grandfather that was keeping her from sleep. Ever since Nathan Crittens had declared that the wedding would fetch him back if anything did, Pam had been expecting that he would come, and she was stirred to a wonderful pitch of excitement about it. Of course he would be angry, that was only to be expected, but if only the ceremony was over and Sophie safely turned into Mrs. George Lester, Pam decided that she did not much care what happened in the way of a disturbance. There would be plenty of people on hand ready to manage the old man, and she herself could render a good account of her stewardship. What was it Nathan had said yesterday? Oh, she remembered. He had said that he had never seen the land at Ripple in such a fine state of cultivation before, and he had known the place for a good many years. For much of this he was responsible himself, as he had cultivated the land. That is to say, he had plowed it and planted it, as he had done Mrs. Buckle's land, but Pam and Jack had paid for this by lending him the use of their hands and the strength of his own fields, and they had kept the crops at Ripple hand-hoed ever since the first bit of green had shone through. It had been hard work, and they had been appallingly ignorant, but they had done exactly as they had been told, and had the work so hard that success was bound to come. Pam flounced around uneasily, if only she could go to sleep. When morning came, she would be so tired that it would be a positive misery to drag herself from bed. Oh, it was stupid to be so wakeful when she could sleep. The moon poured a flood of silvery light into the room, and before its pale dawn 
could come stealing over the forest, for the summer nights were at their shortest. She rose softly from the bed she shared with Sophie and walked to the window. This room looked out on the side of the house where the forest came nearest, which one of the reasons why Pam loved it so. Another of her reasons for being fond of it was because it had been her mother's room indeed. She had found one of her mother's old cotton flocks hanging in the funny homemade wardrobe that stood in one corner of the wide room. The forest came so close on this side that only a strip of pasture lay between it and the house. It was here that Pam had shot at the wolves to scare them when they howled around the house in winter. What a difference between those nights and this one. Pam leaned out of the window and enjoyed the cool breeze, fragrant with the odors of hemlock and pine, which stole across the wide reaches of the forest. Then her ear was caught by a faint rustling sound. What was it? Surely the cow had not broken bounds again. It would be too annoying to have to go hunting on Sophie's wedding day. But no, by dint of craning her neck at an uncomfortable angle, Pam got a glimpse of the cow lying peacefully near the big maple at the far end of the small strip and pasture. Then she heard the rustling again, and she was positive she saw a head poked out from the bracket and brambles. A head? But whose head? Suddenly there rushed into her mind what Nathan had said about her grandfather, Thrusting her head farther from the window so that she might not disturb Sophie, she called softly, Grandfather, Grandfather, is that you? How low her voice sounded in the silence of the forest. The whirling of grasshoppers grew faint, as if they had paused listening for the answer to her call. Then a cock cowed lustily from the barn, under the mistaken impression that morning was close at hand, and a sleeping bird in a thicket hard by let loose a rippling cadence ending in a plaintive chickadee. Though Pam strained her ears, she heard not a single further movement, and after a long while she crept back to bed and fell asleep immediately, not waking in the morning until she was aroused by Sophie. Had it been fancy, or did someone really poke his head from that thicket last night? She wondered. Directly she was dressed, and she ran downstairs and made an exhaustive search of the spot, but she got very wet from the dew and tore a three-corner slit in the sleeve of her blouse, but she accomplished nothing else and went back to the house feeling very cross with herself for being so foolish. Sophie was radiantly happy this morning, just as a bride should be. The tears of last night had washed away her natural regret that her mother could not stand by her today. After all, it might have been even worse, and Don, who came over early, told her that the two invalids were so well that they refused to stay in bed and were only kept in the house by main of force. Oh, it is a shame, cried Sophie, but there must always be a drawback somewhere, and better that than some things, but it is horrid to be parted from one's mother. So I think, murmured Pam with a wistful sigh, I have kept you from Mrs. Grinson such a lot, too, that my conscience is troubling me a bit. Oh, and you cannot help yourself, and I have had such a lovely chance of doing my sewing, said Sophie. I cannot think how girls like to have that sort of work done for them. I have no end of real happiness from making my trousers. That is because you are a hopeless old-fashioned and stodgy person. Early Victorian, we should all call you in London, and we should tilt our noses in quite a superior fashion. But all the same, we should admire your industry and envy you the garments you cleverly fingers have made. Pam gave Sophie a big hug as she spoke, and then rushed away to look after the custards. Weddings had their sad side, 
and it would be a real grief to her if to lose Sophie from her daily life. But she was not going to shed tears today, however bad she might feel. Plenty of time for weeping when the show was over and the guests were gone. She stirred the custard with so much vigor that she spilled some of the stuff on the hot plate of the cooking stove, raising an awful odor and rousing the wrath of Galena, who had come over early and assumed the leadership of the food department. There was so much to do that the hours of the morning simply flew. Pam gave her turkey a big meal in the middle of the day and told them that they would have a very short commons for supper and might even get none at all. Then, when the poultry and the young pigs had been stuffed until they could eat no more, she and Jack rushed indoors to get into festival attire. There was not much in the way of dress that either of them could manage. Jack's Sunday suit was rather shabby and too small, also for he had grown so fast since coming to New Brunswick. But he would not be the only person with well-worn garments at the wedding, and when one listened to his jokes and joined in the laughter he raised, one forgot about his garb and thought only of him. Pam was not in much better case, for she had no new clothes this summer, but a girl's thing are easier to manage, and her white frock washed and ironed by her own hands was fresh enough to pass muster anywhere. The company began to arrive quite early, for everyone was anxious to have as much of the fun as possible. The horses were unharnessed and turned into the farther pastures with the cow. The poor beasts thought that Sunday had come a little earlier than usual. They were worked so hard at this time of year that the extra hours off work meant a lot to them. Some of them had come 14 or 15 miles, but they would rest until late into the evening, and they so enjoyed the treat in their own way as much as the humans did in theirs. Pam and Jack received the company. It was not etiquette that Sophie should be seen as yet, so she remained upstairs, feeling rather out of it, if the truth be told, and wondering at all the laughter was about down below. By peeping from the big empty room which was next to their bedroom, she could get a glimpse of the wagons driving up to the house, filled with people, and every minute the laughter and the fun downstairs grew louder and merrier. What a time they are having, she murmured. Then she paced the room restlessly, her little high-heeled shoes making a fitful tapping on the bare floor as she walked. Of course, it was lovely to be the bride, the person of most consequence in the crowd, the one to whom all others were looking, but she realized that the others had their compensations and that they were a large amount of fun to be got in the hard work of organizing and carrying the festivities through. Then a hush fell on the place, and the house grew suddenly quiet, and Sophie began to tremble, for she realized that the minister had come, and she guessed that she would soon hear Pam's foot on the stairs. It was Pam who was coming to fetch her. Pam had to act in a good many roles that day. She was bridesmaid, she was hostess, and she was to the mother, the poor fluttering little bride, as well. These manifold interests left her with no time to think of herself. She had scarcely a moment either to think of her grandfather or to wonder what sort of scene there would be if he chose this moment for his return to his home. A light run of feet up the stairs, then the door flew open and Pam burst into the room. Oh, you are lovely, she cried with a positive awe in her voice. My dear, I never realized before what a beautiful face you have. It has always been the beauty of your character that has appealed to me. Come, it is time. The clergyman is waiting. 
All Sophie's impatience and restlessness dropped from her as if it had never been. She rose slowly, and without a word, she put her hand in that of Pam and went with her down the crowded sitting room where the bridegroom awaited her coming. The silence was so profound that the tapping of Sophie's heels sounded quite as loud as she crossed the kitchen and entered the sitting room where her father came forward to lead her on to the bright-hued carpet. A bobolink was singing in the tree outside, and the sunshine filtered in through the elegant pair of white lace curtains which Mrs. Luke Dubson of Hunt's Crossing had lent to adorn the window. A low murmur of approval swept around the crowded room as the bride walked forward to take her stand on the carpet. It was doubtful whether Sophie heard it, for the full solemnity of what she was doing was on her now, with the exultation of great happiness. It was Pam who heard it, and to her it was like a sweet music, for she knew that she had succeeded in her undertaking, and that Sophie's wedding, regarded from the standpoint of a social function, was all that it could be. It was the real novel sight of Pam, and it upset all her previous notions of what weddings were like. She had been a spectator at several weddings in London churches, but this was quite different, and in some particular fashion immeasurably more solemn. In fact, before the ceremony was over, she was shaking and shivering, and telling herself that matrimony is such a terrible responsibility that she should never dare face it on her own account. The old dog poked its head in at the open door, but seeing the number of people gathering in a serious state, the creature backed out and fled. It had, in a measure, got used to seeing people, but a number of persons gathering in one place seemed to upset its nerves. When the benedict was pronounced, there was a stir and a movement, and everyone wanted to crown around the bride to congratulate her, but Pam fled to the out-of-place where the kettles had been set to boil on the cracked stove. She was responsible for the coffee-making, and she knew that the wedding feast must begin directly. The registry had been signed, for those of the guests who had come long distances would be greatly in need of all refreshments, and she was not minded to fail short in her duties as hostess. Amanda Higgins had been entrusted with the task of looking after the matters in this direction, but she was rather a feather-headed young person, and all thought of the kettles and the fire went out of her head directly. She heard the tap-tapping of Sophie Hills on the stairs. She had rushed to see the bride, and getting squeezed into a corner of the sitting room, whence it was not easy to escape. She had stayed there reveling in the show, while the fire had died down for want of attention, and the kettles were scarcely warm. Poor Pam, it was really hard to have succeeded so far to fail at this point. She trembled with anger as she stuffed dry kindling into the stove and listened to the roaring of flames and the rusty old stovepipe, but it was horrid to feel angry on such an occasion. Indeed, it seemed almost like an insult to Sophie to give way to such bad temper just now, and Pam fought with might and main to get calm control of herself the while she plied her fire with sticks. Her face was hot and red, her hands were dirty, and even her frock had some smudges when the Irishman who had driven Janie Robinson and her lame sister to the wedding came in from the barn and took work out of her hands. He declared that he was a first-rate hand at making fires burn on all occasions and that nothing would make him happier than to get those kettles to boil. Pam yielded her task and, thankful enough, and was turning to wash her hands before going back to the company when the Irishman said, 
There was an old man came a creepin around here a while ago, and he was after asking if the young lady were to be seen, and I told him that if it was yourself he was after wanting to see, he would have to be waiting until the wedding was over. He was markedly curious to know whose wedding it would be, and when I had told all I knew a little more, he said that he would be after resting himself in the shade of the trees until such a time as you might find it convenient to see him. Pam turned with a jerk, her heart beating so hard that it seemed to her the Irishman must hear it. An old man, did you say? Where, or oh, where has he gone? He said he would be resting in the shade away out Bayon, and the Irishman, whose name was Riley O'Shearn, flung his hand out in a vague direction of the forest. It was her grandfather, of course. That was Pam's first thought, and her second was that he was afraid to enter his own house because of the wedding crowd and all the bustle that was on hand. She must go and find him and bring him in to join the feast. Oh, this tiresome Irishman, why had he not come before to let her know she was wanted? Go find Mrs. Grittis or Mrs. Buckle and ask one of them to make the coffee for me and to begin the meal if I'm not back. I must go to find my grandfather and bring him here as quickly as I can. Pam was wildly excited. She remembered the rustling that she had heard in the undergrowth and how she had fancied she saw a face poke out. Could that have been the old man come to recon before he ventured back into his own? Then came the maddening wonder as to what it was that had kept him away so long, and why he seemed afraid to come back. She ran swiftly across the narrow strip of pasture and plunged in among the trees. Grandfather, grandfather, where are you? She was sending her voice out in a shout, for she argued he might be hard of hearing, and oh, she must make him understand that she wanted him to come. The Irishman had said, that he was going to rest in the shade over there, but that was surely foolish when there was shade and plenty under the trees which stood almost close to the house. Grandfather, grandfather, where are you? Try as she would, she could not keep a ring of impatience from her voice. They would be waiting for her at the house. Neither Mrs. Buckle nor Galena would know quite how much coffee to make, and it was all the things more exasperating to have to run away in this fashion when there was so much to be done, and the occasion was so unusually festive. In spite of all this the calling, there was no response. Perhaps the man had gone farther away, Pam searched along the narrow tracks made by the pigs and calves. She wandered here and hurried there with feverish persistence until the perspiration was pouring down her face. She had torn her frock, and her hair, done more elaborately than usual, was streaming down her back. How really horrid it all was! She was ready to give up the quest in disgust and to go back to the house when shouting came again and she heard the faint response to her calling and at once plunged forward to meet the one who called her. In her haste, she went to jump to the rotting trunk of the tree that lay half buried in fern, but catching the heel of her shoe as she tried to clear the obstacle, she came down with a tremendous crash and was for the time completely stunned. Chapter 22. Good News People accustomed to waiting on themselves never feel so much at a loss in times of strain as those who have servants to command in a general way. Galena Gittin, summoned by the Irishman, came to the out place and started making coffee for all that big company 
with the ease and dispatch that came from long years of having to do all sorts of things at the shortest possible notice. She wondered why Pam had not spoken to her before about doing this particular bit of business, but she supposed something had turned up suddenly to call her away. Mrs. Grittens, where is Pam? demanded Jack, dashing out from the big kitchen like a small tornado. The guests were all filing in and taking their places at the table, but there was no one to look after them, to act as hostess, or to do anything at all. I am not the ghost of a notion, replied Galena, who was very hot and very much occupied with the coffee. If the folks are ready, you had better start them at feeding, for this coffee is prime now, and some of the people must be fair tuckered out by this time. I can't sit at the head of the table, and what do you call it? Dispense hospitality, said Jack. I will get Dr. Grenson to do it, and Mrs. Buckle can help him, but I want to know where Pam has got to. Is anything the matter, do you expect? There will be in a minute, if this coffee boils over, exclaimed Galena, and she hastily lifted the two hissing pots from the stove. Jack darted away to see Dr. Grinson and Mrs. Buckle were looking after the company, and then came back to tell Galena that someone had seen Pam running across the padlock to the forest. What would she be doing there for a time like this, demanded Galena, in blank amazement. Perhaps she would be going to find the old man that was waiting to see her, put in the Irishman, who had just come in from the woodpile with another armful of logs, which he proceeded to cram into the stove one by one. What old man? asked Jack. Riley O'Sheen, why didn't you tell me that this before? You never said one word. Galena stamped with impatience and turned upon the unfortunate Irishman with so much wrath that he fairly cowered before her. Was it yourself that wanted to know? Sure ain't fair. I'm sorry to have disappointed ye. It was an old man that was asking after to see the young lady, and when I told him that it was a wedding that she was seen through in the next room, he said that he would wait until it was over. He went off to sit in the shade by reason that he was so very hot, and here he comes, but the young lady isn't with him. Jack and Galena faced round in a great hurry at the Irishman's last words, then Galena cried out in a tone of disappointment. Why, it's only old Gilbert Pomeroy from Corner Bottom. I expect he has come over to see Pam about the bees. He told her that he would let her know as soon as he had a swarm to spare. When Pam heard it was an old man, I expect she said to herself that it was grandfather come home, and she would set off hot foot to find him. I know her. Jack drew a long breath and looked decidedly troubled. Their grandfather was such a much less real person to him than to Pam, because he had never arrived at Ripple close upon the old man's disappearance as she had. I will talk to Gilbert. Do you go and find Don Grinson, and he will hunt for Pam. Galena had taken hold of the situation in her usual capable fashion, and sending Amanda to carry the coffee into the next room, she sailed out to talk bees with old Gilbert Pomeroy, and finally induced the old man to come into the house and drink the health of the bride in a cup of coffee, which was the strongest beverage at Ripple that day. Don started out in a hasty search for Pam, shouting and calling, but getting no response. Then Jack set off in another direction, but the time passed and they did not return. Galena went into the room where the wedding feast was spread, explained the situation in a few terse words. Has Mr. Pavel really come back? demanded Sophie, going rather white, for she had lived with Pam long enough to know that the old man's return was longed for and feared by her friend in about equal proportions. No, snapped Galena, 
who is feeling decidedly cross by this time. Everything regarding the wedding has gone so smoothly before, and it was horrid to have a hitch at this crucial point. She had worked so hard beforehand that she was decidedly aggrieved that she could not be left in peace to enjoy herself now. That silly idiot of an Irishman said that old man was waiting to see her, and you know what Pam is. She thought the old man had come home, so she rushed off to find him, and she will run until she drops, unless someone catches up with her and tells her that it was a mistake, and that the old man is only Gilbroy Pomeroy from the corner bottom. Everyone rose from the table now. Food had lost its favor, and appetite had gone. The men went here and there through the undergrowth, searching for Pam, while the women and girls wandered up and down, calling to her, listening in vain for the answer to their shouts. It was Don who found her when he sprang over the log and found her lying among the ferns at the willow scrub, white and unconscious, with a streak of blood on her cheek. He thought she was dead and cried out in dismay. Pam opened her eyes at the sound of his voice, staring at him for a few minutes in a bewildered sort of way, as if she could not remember where she was or what had happened. Then she gasped out in a frightened short tone, Oh, Don, grandfather has come back. I cannot find him. Whatever shall I do? He has not come back, burst out Don in an explosive fashion. It was only Gilbert Pomeroy from the corner bottom who had come up to know if you would have that swarm of bees that you talked about. The Irishman, being a stranger and not too sharp, did not know him, and you jumped to the conclusion that it was your grandfather. You rushed off without letting anyone know, and now everybody is out searching for you, and we have been in a regular panic. I'm so sorry, murmured Pam, and there were tears in her eyes because of the reproach in his tone. This constant expecting to see... The old man is wearing you out and spoiling your life, said Don, as he helped Pam to her feet and supported her until she was able to stand alone. Look here, we have got the clergyman and we have the company. Let us be married when we get back to the house, and then I can stay here with you and take care of you. To poor Pam, sore of the head and still more sore of heart, the suggestion was about the fiercest temptation she had ever had to face. If only she might take the easy way out and have Don between herself and the ever-present dread of the old man's return. She was owing to herself now that she did fear his coming back more than anything else, and it was the constant apprehension of it that was spoiling her life. Oh, to have the mystery cleared, and to be done with this uncertainty. Say yes, Pam, and it shall be managed. I am quite sure that it can be done, because of the number of witnesses we have here, or if a longer notice is really necessary, then I will get Mrs. Buckle to stay with you until we can be married. He urged with his arms holding her up, his strength between her and the troubles which shadowed her days. Pam felt as if she must give way and take the shortcut out of the middle. Then she remembered that she had come as a pioneer to make the way easy for others, and it was not herself that she should be thinking of at this time. Her head was aching so badly from the blow, which had stunned her that it was difficult to think and act coherently. She felt bruised and battered, a perfect wreck. All the favor had gone from the day's festivities, and she was conscious only of a great weariness and a longing to creep away out of sight and to be done with it all. I can't do it, Don. Really, I can't, she flattered, and her eyes were wistful in their pleading when she raised them to his face. I must go on as I am doing now, 
until I know where grandfather is or until he comes back again. He may be dead, just think of how easy it is for anyone to drop out without other people knowing it, urged Don. But there was something in the resolute set of Pam's white face that warned him he would not find it easy to turn her from the course on which she had set her mind. That is what I tell myself, she said, and her tone was deeply troubled. All the same, we have no proof, and so we are bound to go on as usual. Oh, I'm sorry to have been so silly and to have spoiled everyone's pleasure in such a fashion. I can walk now, thank you, and I am not hurt at all, except that my head is so sore where I banged it into the tree trunk where I caught my foot and fell. Don urged her no further, seeing the uselessness of it. He helped her back to the house, explained the situation to the others, and made it easy for her to slip away to her room and lie down for a rest. Then he got the fun started in good earnest, and with the help of Jack, succeeded in keeping the whole company in a state of bubbling satisfaction. The bride and bridegroom were driven to Hunts Crossing for the downriver boat and the first stage of the long journey to the far west, and then by twos and threes and wagons and carts on foot, the company disappeared. Most of them would have chores to do when they reached home, and all would need to go to bed with the sun, since the next day's work would call them from their rest at dawn. Don drove his father home, for the doctor was glad to rest his horses when he could, and his son mostly drove good cattle, which got over the ground in fine style. They took the corner rather more smartly than the older man approved, but young things have a tendency to be reckless, and so far Don had always contrived to keep clear of accidents. Tonight Don had only secondary attention for his horses, for he was telling his father of Pam's state of mind regarding the possible return of the old grandfather, and he was insisting that the doctor should write to Mrs. Walsh and tell her it was plain duty to come back to her old home. It will be some time yet before the law will permit the old man's death to be assumed, especially as he was seen at the lumber camp, said Don. It is not clear to my mind that he was seen at that camp, replied the doctor. When I wrote to the foreman of the camp, he said they had no one of the name Rack Prevail there, nor did he remember anyone who answered to the description I gave him of the old man. The trouble is that we can't prove he was not there. Don shook his head with a bouldering air, then went on. In any case, it should be Mrs. Walsh who is in command at Ripple. She is the old man's daughter, and her duty is here. You will write, father, and you will put it in strongly, please. Pam is at the point where every nerve is strained, almost to breaking point. She has got Jack now, I know, but he is younger than she is, and she needs someone older. Yourself, for instance, suggested the doctor slyly, and laughed at his hearty, genial fashion, have got rid of his eldest daughter today, and he was thinking it would be uncommonly pleasant to feel that he had another daughter to take her place. Don shook his head with a rueful air. Pam won't have me until the mystery is cleared up. If it is never cleared up, then I suppose we shall remain single until the end of our lives. It is not a cheerful prospect, and that is another reason why I shall be glad to see Mrs. Walsh and the rest of the family. The doctor nodded in complete comprehension and promised that the letter should be ready for the next mail. Then he began to talk on other things, and so the journey ended. The next three weeks slipped by in such a whirl of work that Pam could keep no count of their going. 
She and Jack were out of the doors from morning until night. When Sunday came, they managed to get to meeting once in the day when they saw their neighbors who were all as busy as they were themselves. The weather was glorious, and all that could be desired from the farmer's point of view. The crops were looking well, and life was juggling on with only a normal amount of friction. Then one evening, Amanda Higgins arrived with a letter for Pam, which she said Nathan Griddens had left at Mrs. Buckles on his way home from the post office. Not finding anyone but the dog at home at Ripple, Amanda walked into the house and laying the letter on the table where the unclean breakfast cockery was still standing, she went out again, closing the door behind her to keep the poultry from wandering into the house. She met Pam and Jack toiling home from the woods with a great heap of timothy grass piled on the hand truck, and there were parts of the forest near Ripple where timothy grass grew in profusion and they were harvesting some of the patches as provisions for the winter when they hoped to have more cattle. There is a letter for you in the house. I left it on the table, called Amanda, when she came within shouting distance, and then she volunteered an additional information. It has come from England. A letter from Mother, cried Pam, with positive ecstasy in her tone. Oh, how truly delightful. Thank you for bringing it over, Amanda. I have just been dreading going indoors this evening, for the breakfast things are still unwashed, and the beds are not made, and we must cook supper or go without. It was not a rosy prospect, but this had made all the difference. I saw you were a bit behind with things when I went into your house, and I would have stopped and slicked things up a bit for you if I could, said Amanda, who had a kindly disposition, albeit she was more than a trifle freckless. But Mrs. Buckle told me to make haste back because we are going to make butter tonight. It is so much firmer than this hot weather when it is done in the evening. Pam thanked her for a friendly thought and hurried on her way, putting quite double energy into her task. She had been so tired only the minute before and now almost inclined to tell Jack that if he wanted any supper, he would have to cook it himself. Now things looked quite different and with the thought of the letter to cheer her, she began to plan a really nice supper that would cook itself while she washed the breakfast dishes and made the beds. It was not often that she left these necessary household tasks undone when she went to work in the fields, but she had slept later than usual and could not get through her work before Jack was ready and waiting for her help. When they reached the house, Jack went off to do the evening chores while Pam prepared to rush around indoors. She fairly yearned for time to wash her face and do her hair, but a glance at the clock and the keenness of her appetite warned her that she had better get forward with preparations for the evening meal. They had no dinner that day, there had been no time, and a hunch of harvest cake had been the only food for which they had stayed during the long hot hours. No wonder Pam felt tired. A year ago she would have thought of such a life with horror, but ideas change as one grows older, and Pam felt her highest joy now lay in keeping the old home ready for her mother and the children. The breakfast things were washed and set for supper. The beds were made and supper was smelling really good by the time Jack came into the house. Pam washed her hands and face and she even put her hair tidy and was feeling that she had earned a rest. What is the letter about? asked Jack as he came to the supper table. He was very damp about the face and head for he had been stuffing his head into a bucket of water as that was the quickest way of getting clean 
and being very anxious about his supper, he had not stayed for much towel work. As if I should dream of opening the letter until you were here to share it with me, cried Pam in a fine scorn. Oh, I do wonder how they are getting on with both of us away. Of course, it may be good for the boys in Miro to learn to help themselves, but it seems to me that they need us as much as ever they did. I need my supper, sighed Jack, and he reached for the saucepan of stirabout, which was simmering on the stove. We will have a proper midday meal tomorrow, said Pam. I do not think it pays so long without meals. One feels so tired, but oh, I do begrudge the time spent in coming indoors to cook, especially now that there is so much to do. Mother is coming, yelled Jack, who had opened the letter because his portion of stirabout was too hot to eat. She and the children are already on their way. Read the letter, Pam. They will be here next week. My word, she has hustled this business, and no mistake. Mother is coming, cried Pam, who had snatched the letter and was eagerly devouring it. It sounds too good to be true. You won't get any dinner tomorrow, Jack. We dare not spend time in fussing about ourselves when there is so much to be done to get ready for her. You see what she says? that she has had such a good offer for the house and the furniture that it seems better to take it and come off straight away, especially as Dr. Grinson has written to her that for my sake she ought to come at any sacrifice. Oh, how could he write to her in such a fashion? I am very glad that he did, because don't you see, his letter got there at the very moment it was needed to help Mother make up her mind. Now she will come and she will settle down and if Grandfather comes back, she will be able to manage him. At least, we will hope so, or so, if he does not turn up, then she will be on the spot to claim the property as heir at law, as soon as we are allowed to assume that he is dead. To my way of thinking, there is a great deal in being on hand at a time like this. So I think, but I can't grasp it yet, that Mother really is coming, cried Pam, who had jumped up from the supper table and was rushing around frantically trying to do two or three things all at once. Jack, I must clean the house down again from top to bottom, for I could not have Mother come and find this place dirty. What would she think of me? She would think you had other things to do, and she would be about right, replied Jack, leaning back in his chair and stretching out his limbs with an air of luxurious enjoyment. Leave off fussing around, Pam, and sit down for two minutes while we let this bit of news soak in. I don't seem able to believe it yet, but I expect it is true. As for the house, if it is not clean enough to suit Mother, she will start at turning it inside and out herself, and by the time she has done it, she will feel quite right at home, and she will wonder why she didn't come back sooner. There is nothing like work for making people content with their surroundings. That is why folks butter a cat's toes when they take the pussy to a fresh home. She has to be so busy licking her feet clean, and it is such a pleasant occupation that she forgets she's never lived anywhere else. Pam laughed. She was shrewd enough to see that Jack's arguments were unanswerable. The house had been thoroughly cleaned for the wedding, but it had hardly been touched since, for every available minute had been spent out of doors. It was necessary to be always at work on the growing crops, pulling out the ferns and grubbling up the willow's shoots. Ripple had been a cleared farm for more than 40 years, but if it had been left to lie without attention for six months of summer, it would have lapsed back into forest again. The roots were there, 
and the seeds, and it was only the most careful and vigilant care and attention that kept the wilderness from growth in check. It will be lovely to have Mother here, Pam heaved a big sigh of pure happiness as she came to sit down in the rocking chair near the open door. We shall have a home again, Jack, and a dinner every day, which is still more to the point, he exclaimed, smacking his lips loudly and screwing his face into such an aspect of absolute enjoyment that Pam had to laugh at him. Think of the berries the children will be able to gather. Why, there is enough fruit getting ripe on these bushes down by the creek to keep half a dozen families in pies and pudding. We can have jam made and heaps of things. I have felt very bad because it was so impossible to get time to do things when I am in the fields all day. I have no energy left to gather fruit in the evening. But Jack, if we leave the house dirty, we must have that field of potatoes weeded before Mother comes. The ferns in some places are smothering the potatoes, and it looks so untidily too. I am going to bed, said Jack, stumbling to his feet. Perhaps when morning comes I may want to hoe potatoes. Just now I don't seem to care whether they are full of weeds or not. Jack had slept upstairs since the wedding because it was less lonely for Pam to have him within call at night. She was ten minutes later than he was in coming upstairs, but as she passed his open door on her way to her bedroom, she heard his deep breathing and he was already asleep. It was long before slumber came to her. She was too happy even to remember that she was tired. Her mother was coming and her heavy responsibility would be at an end. But how good it was to think she had been able to achieve so much. Chapter 23 The Mystery Cleared Mrs. Walsh looked around her with mingled pleasure and pain. The pleasure was because the old home was so unchanged and it made her feel almost young again to be shot back into the scene of her girlhood and to find that the environment had scarcely altered at all. But there was also keen pain in the thought of what the old man's lonely years must have been like, and the mystery of his disappearance was brought home to her so much more forcibly now that she stood in her own home once more. The boys and Muriel had rushed off with Jack to see the barn and the pigs and the calves, which were the pride of Pam's heart. They had two, one that belonged to their own cow, and another that Pam had bought from Mrs. Buckle when it was a week old and had it brought up by hand. There are quite a lot of things missing from the house, said Mrs. Walsh with a troubled air as she walked from room to room. Of course, in an ordinary way, this would not have seemed wonderful, but knowing my father as I do, I cannot think he would have parted with Mother's picture, which always hung in his room. Then there was the safe that he kept his money in, a small iron affair, which used to stand by the side of his bed. Have you seen it anywhere? There is no safe in the house that I know of, and we have turned over every hole and corner, replied Pam. A finer collection of rubbish was surely never found outside a second-hand shop, but we brushed and dusted it all and put it back for you to sort when you came. I cannot think what he would have done with the safe unless he has buried it somewhere, said Mrs. Walsh in a musing tone. He did not believe in banks, and he often used to keep a lot of money in the house. It was locked up in the safe, and he thought it was all right, but I think it was a very risky thing to do, especially if people got to suspect it, for even this wilderness is not too remote for light-fingered folk. Pam was thinking of Mose Piggott as she spoke, 
and there was, as always, a ping of pity in her heart for the man whose life had been so wasted. To me, it looks as if his going was a planned affair, and in view of your expected arrival, it makes things seem very strange, went on Mrs. Walsh, and then the two of them being at this moment in the end bedroom downstairs, which had been prepared for her use, she went down on her knees and started peering curiously at the floor. What are you looking for? demanded Pam, a ring of alarm in her voice, for her mother's conduct was certainly strange. I am looking for the mark on the floor where the safe stood, and yes, there it is. Do you see those screw holes? It was screwed to the floor, and by the looks of things, it has not been removed from the place for very long. Pam, he must have moved that safe when he expected to have one of you children here with him. I expect he buried it, only the puzzle will be to find out where. He must have had money in it and was afraid that you would be curious about it. Oh, what a weary misery it all is. But, Mother, Grandfather was poor. Everyone says so, gasped Pam, worried by the look on her mother's face and by all the unpleasant possibilities called up by Mrs. Walsh's words. I dare say everyone thought so, and he would do what he could to keep them in their beliefs. But I do not think he was poor. He was always too fond of money not to have saved when he had the chance. He could live on next to nothing here, and if he only made a little money, that little he could save. Mother, come to have supper and leave off worrying about this, said Pam hurriedly, for she could not bear to see how careworn her mother suddenly looked. I suppose that is about the only thing to be done, though it is very hard not to worry, said Mrs. Walsh. She followed Pam across the big sitting room, littered just now with the luggage of the travelers, and out of the kitchen where a comfortable meal was spread. It was the middle of the day for Mrs. Walsh, and her children had come up river by the night boat. Pam and Jack declared that it gave them almost fearful, dissipated feeling to be sitting down to a meal in the middle of the day that was not Sunday, but weeding and hoeing were off for this one day, which was very much of a festival, and Pam had performed miracles of hard work since dawn in getting the house ready for the travelers. Nathan Grittens had driven his team to Hunt's Crossing, taking Jack with him to meet the arrivals, but he had too much tact to come in when they reached Ripple, and had driven off in a great hurry, pleading urgent business. The boys were in rapture over the place, and Muriel was tearing around like a little wild thing. To them, the new life would be like one long holiday, and Greg declared that he did not mind how hard he had to work to provide he did not have to wait at a table again. You may have to do more worse than that. You may have to cook your own supper or go without, laughed Pam. As if I should mind that, snorted Greg. I used to loathe waiting on the boarders and seeing the disgusted greed which which they swallowed their food and the eagerness to get their money's worth. If you want to know what a person really is like, watch them feed, I say. A good idea, put in Jack hastily, for he had seen a cloud gather on his mother's face and was not going to have her worried with the nonsense of the young ones if he could help it. A very good idea indeed, Mr. Gregory Walsh, and by the elegant way in which you are at this moment eating flapjacks and molasses, I would incline to say that you are a bit of a bounder and not very well acquainted with the usage of polite society. The others burst into a peal of laughter at the expense of Greg and the face of Mrs. Walsh smoothed 
as if by magic. It was only Jack and Pam who understood how any allusion to the hardship and the boarding house life hurt her, and they spared her when they could. There were some friends of Mr. Gay's on the boat we came in, said Mrs. Walsh, and she lingered sitting at the table with Pam and Jack when the others had rushed away. They were in first class, of course, and we were in the second, but they used to come to pay us visits nearly every day. They are going west to British Columbia for the summer, and young Mr. Gay, his nephew to Mr. Gay, who was so kind to Jack, asked if he could come here for shooting in the autumn. He and his friend want a moose if they can get one. They will bring a man with them, and they would rather not stay at Ripple, which they declare would be too civilized. I told them if nothing else offered, we would build them a shack right out in the forest. They are going to pay me well for coming. It is a shockingly busy time for shack building, said Pam. They would want an extra special kind, too, because they are not used to roughing it. But we shall certainly have to do what we can, because old Mr. Gay was so good to Jack. Why not rig up that old house in the tote road, suggested Jack. Nathan told me that is a wonderful place for moose, and as for other game, why they might almost lie in bed and shoot the stuff that passes the house. Oh, they could not go there. It is such a shocking ruin. And it is haunted, too, cried Pam with a shiver, whereupon Jack burst out laughing. But Mrs. Walsh wanted to know what the place they were talking of. There's a little house, very dilapidated, standing on some ground which borders the old tote road. Grandfather bought the land some few years ago, so Luke Dubson told me, explained Pam. I remember the place now, said Mrs. Walsh. The man who lived there was an Indian, or else had an Indian wife. I don't remember which. But, Pam, don't you see that this bears out what I have said, that your grandfather was not poor, or he would have not have been able to buy land? It was only twenty acres, and he might have taken a mortgage from the biggest part of the price, replied Pam. Mrs. Walsh shook her head. She began to talk of other things soon after, but all the time she was puzzling about the manner of her father's disappearance. Pam and Jack had to work all the harder in the days that followed to make up for the holiday they had allowed themselves to welcome their mother and the younger children. But life was so much easier that the hard work scarcely counted in compensation. It was beautiful to throw down their hose at noon and come walking indoors to find well-cooked meals spread ready for them to eat. It was even more delightful to still have no supper to cook at the end of the long day. Then Mrs. Walsh brought a horse and a wagon, and she said it would never do for Muriel to have so many miles to walk to attend school. Oh, life was easier all around, only there was one cloud that did not lift, and Pam could not be happy because of that still unexplained mystery of her grandfather's disappearance. Don Grinson came and went. He was so fortunate to win the esteem of Mrs. Walsh while the younger children adored him, but Pam was resolute in her determination to permit no engagement between him and herself while they still lived under the shadow of what might be disgrace. The weeks slipped by so quickly that August came and went, and September came in with flaming autumn splendor before anyone at Ripple seemed to realize that summer was on the wane. Then came a letter from Mrs. Gay asking if the shooting lodge could be ready for him in a couple of weeks, as he wanted to have as much time possible in New Brunswick before returning to England, where he was due in early November at the latest. 
Whatever shall we do? cried Pam in dismay. Jack, do you think we could have a lodging bee and get a frame house run up and ready in two weeks? It will never do to disappoint these people. Besides, think of how glad we shall be to have the money. I should have the bee to put that house in repair that we have already got, said Jack. He turned to John Grinson, who had brought the mail over from the corner, and asked him if he did not think Pam was silly to object to the place being used. Don was not disposed to think anything Pam might do as foolish, and he said so with straightforward simplicity, which brought the hot blushes to Pam's cheeks and set the others laughing. I suppose that we go and see this place straight away, said Mrs. Walsh. I have been meaning to go over there every week since I came, but there are so many things to be done, and there never seems to be an opportunity for outside things. I can drive you over at this minute, if you like, suggested Don. It will save you having to hitch your own horse to your wagon, and time is everything these days. What is that, I say, answered Jack. We will all three go if you can take us. The kids can run the house until we get back. Put on a hat, mother, and come along. The ride will do you good. It is so hot this morning, and you did not go out all day yesterday. Mrs. Walsh had a few objections to make, but these were splendidly overruled, and she was anxious to please Mr. Gay, and of course, if the building would do, it would be silly to put another, especially as labor was so hard to come by. The nearest trail to the old tort road was too narrow by wagon, and Don had to take them by a broader trail, which was more than three miles farther. But for him, it was a holiday pure and simple, as Pam sat on the front seat beside him, and Jack and Mrs. Walsh being on the seat behind, Pam was brighter too, more as she used to be before the burden of the old man's mysterious disappearance had become so hard to bear. All the time it was supposed that he had left his home through fear of being arrested for the wounding of Sam Buckle. It had been a bearable trouble because it was so easy to understand. But since the confession of Mose Baguette had cleared the character of Rack Prevel from even the shadow of stain, Pam had been tortured by the wonder as to whether in her, her arrogance and inefficiency she might have left undone something that might have been cleared the mystery. There had been a frost on the previous night, and already the maples were flaming in scarlet and gold. Pam thought of her first coming to Ripple, and how gorgeous of the forest had impressed her. That was nearly a year ago, and all the time she had lived on the edge of tragedy, not knowing what a day might reveal, hoping, fearing, and wondering, yet never able to get any light on the mystery. Mrs. Walsh was telling Jack of some of the adventures of her youth, when they had gone burying in this part of the forest, and they were both laughing over the story, which gave Don a chance to talk to Pam in a low tone. He was telling her now that her mother had come to Ripple. There was surely no need for her to feel the burden of responsibility was hers alone, and so she might as well let him announce the fact of their betrothal. But Pam was up durate still. It was as if she had inherited the spirit of the old man, and having once made up her mind, Nothing could turn her. How much she suffered in making Don suffer, no one herself could realize. She was white and spent with the effort, and the joy of the morning had turned into weariness by the time the horse reached the old tote road, and quickened its pace because the going was smoother. What a place, cried Mrs. Walsh, when Don drew in front of the deserted house, but the roof looked sound, 
with four walls and a roof on the other part should be easy enough. It looks as if we ought to have bought a hatchet to chop our way in, said Jack, as he surveyed the tall weeds and trailing brambles which had grown across the entrance door. I think we'll manage to get in somehow, replied Don. He drew his horse into the shade of the tall maple and, jumping from the wagon, tied the animal to the tree so that it would not take the homeward trail until he was ready. Then he helped Pam and her mother climb down from the wagon and, when they were on the ground, helped Jack to stamp out the weeds and the brambles to make a path to the door. Hello. The handle is tied up with a yellow rag. It looks as if it was quarantine, called out Jack, as he pulled away as a mass of wild briery which spread across the door. That rag is a bit of most Paget's handkerchief, explained Pam. He tied the door with it on the day when we found the links here. I saw it again on the day when I was around here searching for the cow, and I thought it must be pretty good stuff to stood so long. It was like most to be obliged to tear his handkerchief. Any other man would have a bit of string in his pocket, commented Don. Now I thought it was sign of civilization in him, that he possessed a handkerchief at all, put in Pam, who was always stirred to the defense of Mose because of the rescue of the dog. On that day, the creature found its links. I don't admire his taste in handkerchiefs. There is, and thought, too much yellow in it for my fancy, said Jack, who had unfastened the rag and now held it up for their inspection. They all laughed, but their merriment died to a sudden silence when they opened the door and stood on the threshold. With a quick involuntary movement, Jack's hand went to his hat, then dropped again, and he cast a furtive glance round, hoping the others had not noticed what he had been doing. A broken window had ventilated the room, which had a musty smell in spite of that. There was remains of a wooden bed frame in a far corner and a broken stove in another corner, and in the center of the table a solid manufacturer there had been left because it was too unwieldy to move. Is there only one room? What a nuisance, cried Mrs. Walsh, who had wrinkled her nose in distaste, for the odor of the lynx still clung to the place. One room and a cellar, said Don, who had been kicking all the rubbish on the floor and had thus disclosed a trapdoor on the farther side of the room, where the big table cast a shadow. A cellar under this place, exclaimed Pam, in amazement. I should not have thought the house big enough to have a cellar. The place being so small would make it all the more necessary to have a store where the frost could not reach, said Don. You see, the folks who lived here must have had some room and stores, their potatoes and other roots, and it is the cheapest way of doing things to have it under the place where you live. Cheap and nasty, I should say, if they are all smelled like this. You are surely not going down, cried Pam, as Don struggled to lift the trapdoor. Yes, I am. For one must know the condition of the cellar and find out whether the beams of the floor are sound before determining if the house is good enough to repair to be lived in, said Don, as he wrestled fiercely with the trap door. Is it screwed down? asked Pam in surprise, for Don was putting out all his strength and yet failing to raise the trap door. There are no screw holes that I can see, he answered. It feels more as if they were fastened from below, only, of course, that is out of the question. But it is coming up somehow, for I am not going to be beaten over a thing like this. Will you hand me that iron bar, the one leaning above the stove? Thanks. Now, stand clear. Don gave such a mighty heave that with a ripping, tearing sound, the trap door came in halves, and he crashed forward onto the ground. Though he looked ridiculous enough, no one laughed, 
and Jack peering into the dark cavity cried out in blankest surprise. I don't wonder you could not get the door. It is bolted down. I don't wonder you couldn't get the door up. It is bolted down. Now how could that bolt have been shot? How indeed, Don gathered himself up and stooping low over the broken trap door, proceeded to examine it carefully. There was an iron bolt on the underside, and this was shot fully home, the handle of the bolt being turned to prevent it being shaken back. It is certainly queer, muttered Don, and Pam felt a cold shiver steal over her. I'm going down with you, said Jack, as Don unbolted the bit of the trapdoor that had not broken away, and prepared to trust his weight on the ladder that showed firmly from below. Better let me get landed at the bottom first. We don't know the strength of the ladder, you see, and it is not worth while to invite disaster, said Don. He set foot on the ladder with extreme caution and climbing with both hands to the framework of the trap door, stamped and banged at the ladder to test its firmness. It feels solid enough and is more solid than usual, so here we go. The silence above was so tense that the noise of the horse munching grass on the other side of the toad road came to the others plainly enough as they stood, watching Don disappear in the darkness of the cellar. I am down, he announced a minute later, and Jack had stepped on the ladder, disappearing also, before Don had time to fumble in his pockets for a match to get a light. Pam was stooping over the opening. She saw the flash of the match and heard a frightened cry from Jack and a startled word from Don. What is it, she cried. She was shaking all over as if she had gone ague. Cold chills were creeping up her back, and yet she could feel the precipitation trickling slowly down her face. What have you found? demanded Mrs. Walsh, thrusting Pam aside in her excitement and coming to kneel by the yawning hole in the floor. There was a long moment of silence, then Don's voice spoke from below. A dead man is here, sitting in a chair beside a safe. Mrs. Walsh, I think it must be your father. Will you come down? Grandfather's down there, cried Pam, and her voice was shrill with astonishment. Chapter 24 The End Hush, panted Mrs. Walsh, and Pam was immediately ashamed of having made such a noise. Will you come, Mrs. Walsh? asked the voice of Don again from below, but Mrs. Walsh trembled so badly that Pam pulled her back from the top of the ladder. Stay here, Mom. I will go. Strike another match, will you, Don? That is right. I can see now. Pam went steadily down as she spoke. She had screwed her courage to the ordeal because of the manifest unfitness of her mother. Down, down, down she went until she stood on the floor of the cellar, felt her arm grasped by Don, and heard a loud breathing of Jack. Where she breathed and felt a sudden rush of courage because Don gripped her hand so hard. There, as he spoke, Don struck another match, and by its light Pam saw a small iron safe standing on a sort of table, and in a deep, hide-covered chair behind it, a huddled something that looked like a heap of clothes surmounted by an old hat. In the dim light, she could make out the gun leaning against the chair, but at that moment, the match went out, and Don's voice sounded in her ear. Go up now, he commanded. You can't do any good here. Pam climbed up the ladder, dazed and wondering. She heard the sobs of her mother and wondered at it. Then she suddenly felt so faint and queer that she was glad to stumble across the door and put her head out to the sunshine, where the horse still munched in contentment, and the blue butterflies hovered over the white cups of the blind weed as if there were no such thing as death in the world. Jack came up from the cellar, still breathing heavily as if he had been running. 
he had been immediately followed by Don, who had started to turn the table upside down over the broken trap door. Why are you doing that? asked Pam. Don carefully let the table drop over the broken door before he spoke. Then he said gravely, From what I could see by the light of the match, the old man must have been in the habit of keeping his valuables there. I expect he thought it was safer than Ripple, and I dare say he was right, though how he got that safe there alone is more than I can imagine. We don't want anyone going down there until Father and the police have made their examination. If anyone came along when we have gone, he might go down there in all innocence of what there is to find, so it seems best to cover the hole. Now it will drive you and your mother back to Ripple, then Jack and I will go and fetch the police. We can walk by the narrow trail, and that will save time for you, said Pam, but Don would not hear of it, and he drove them back to Ripple. Scarcely a word was spoken by any of them. What Mrs. Walsh was thinking was the last time she had seen her father, before she ran away to get married. The thoughts of the three who had been in the cellar were busy with huddled heaps of garments resting in the old hide-covered chair. It was Reggie Furness who had last seen the old man alive, and he identified the remains by the hat and the coat, which had been green patched on one shoulder. The cause of death was not clear, but supposed to be heart trouble. Rockperville had more than one complaint to his neighbor of pain in his side, which might easily have been disease of the heart. Someone suggested that he had shot himself either by accident or intention, but the theory was at once set aside by the fact of the gun being found loaded in every chamber. It was Pam who testified to the fact of the old man having been there at any rate ever since the first snow of previous fall, as the yellow rag which Moe's baguette had tied on the door had never been removed until the day. When Don discovered the cellar, there was proof enough that Cassidy O'Brien was either mistaken in stating that he had seen the old man working at the lumber camp, or else he made the story up to suit his own ends. From the evidence before them, it was fairly easy to understand that the old man, warned by Reggie of coming of the surprise party, had gone across the forest to his hiding place in the cellar, intending that his unwanted visitors should not find him at home. He had probably forgotten that his grandfather was expected that day. Death must have come to him in a very kindly guise, for there was nothing in the possession of the body to show that he suffered. Indeed, the piece of repose lay upon the huddled remains, and on the table by the safe there was the end of a candle not burnt out, and a box of matches was found in one of the pockets. All the long apprehension and the fierce anxiety were now over. Lifting of the burden was so great that at first Pam could not realize that there was no longer anything to dread. It was Don who emphasized the fact for her, and when he came to see her the week after the funeral, and insisted in the most masterful fashion possible that their engagement should be announced. There is enough to wait for now, and I have been patient long enough, he said, standing drawn up to his full height and looking down at Pam, who was resting in a rocking chair. I don't think you have been patient at all, she said with a low laugh, and her eyes sparkled with fun as they used to do before the burden of her care dulled their light somewhat. Opinions differ, he said calmly, and then he sat down on a little wooden stool by her chair and told her that old, old story, which, however it may be varied by circumstance and telling, always mounts to the same thing in the end. He must have told it well, too, for Pam had no more excuses to bring against Don's desire for an engagement between them. 
It was not until later, when the contents of the safe were examined, that it was found Rat Preville had been quite a wealthy man. He had made no will, and so Mrs. Walsh inherited all he had to leave. Her future would be assured now, and there would be no poverty to fear in her old age, but it might all have been very different, and her interest must have suffered greatly had it not been for the enterprise and courage of Pam in acting as pioneer.